Welcome to Reframe Your Life. I'm Joanne Gibson. And I'm Sandy Reynolds. Together, we bring you our podcast for women who want to live and lead their lives thoughtfully and with intention. On our episodes, we explore diverse topics relevant to all areas of our lives. Joanne and I are really excited to bring our Life Reframers today's guest. Her story is all about reframing, and we're confident that we're all going to learn a lot from this interview. Sia Sunrise Person is the author of two best-selling memoirs, North of Normal and Nearly Normal. They're both available through HarperCollins. And her first story chronicles her wilderness childhood and dramatic move into a modeling career at age 13. She's made many appearances to speak about her very unique life, including a TEDx talk. After living in such cities as New York, L.A., Paris, Munich, and Milan, Sia is now happily settled in Vancouver with her husband and three children. She's currently working on her first novel. So welcome, Sia. Thanks, Sandy. It's great to be here. It's really great to have you here. I listened to the TED Talk and I really value just how um, open you are about your life, Sia. So it's a really, it's a, it's a nice gift that you're offering people. So oh, thank you I again. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, your first book, North of Normal, is the story about your, as Sandy said, very unorthodox childhood uh, and the reframing you did as a result of living that life. And for those of you who haven't heard your talk or, or read your book, just share a little bit about how you got to Alberta and the life that you lived in the first kind of six years of your life. Sure. Um, so it started with my grandparents who were living in California. And my mother got pregnant with me at the age of 16 and my father was out of the picture. Uh, my grandfather was a very interesting man. He had some very interesting beliefs. Um, among them, uh, you know, he, he really believed that the only way to truly find freedom in life was to completely remove yourself from society. Um, so he wasn't even interested in communes or anything like that. He just wanted to take his family and live in the wilderness by no one's rules but his own, basically. Yeah. So um, when my mother was eight months pregnant with me, they moved from California um, over the border into Hills, British Columbia, into a, um, an old house to kind of wait for my birth. Um, <laughs> yeah, but there were quite, some crazy things that happened. My mom was very, you know, having a very tough time as a, as a young single mother. Mm. Um, so we ended up staying until I was uh, one. But um, so at 18 months, my grandfather packed us all up and moved us to the Kootenai Plains of Alberta. And we lived there for the next several years, uh, I'd say the next three years, in a teepee with, um, you know, obviously completely off the grid, no electricity, no running water. We hunted for all our food. And uh, it was pretty crazy. There was a lot of uh, nudity and drug use and um, a lot of things that, you know, most children are not exposed to. And I was the, the youngest child or I was pretty much the only child in, in a world, world of adults. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, it's interesting, though, because I remember from a very early age, even though I, I hadn't really experienced anything outside the wilderness, feeling like my family was very different from other families and knowing that I was different from them and that I wanted something different. Mm. Wow. Yeah, you mentioned in one of your videos that you were a pretty much a yeah, young child in an adult's world and you really had to look after yourself. 
way. Yeah, well, my, you know, my mother was a not not a, a, a very well prepared parent. And um, we lived kind of off and on with my grandparents. When I was five, we took off to live with her boyfriend. And then, you know, things really got crazy at that point. And I really found that I was on my own sort of trying to make her see how her lifestyle was harming us, but she was very swept up in it. And so as a result, mm-hmm. I, I, I had a, a lot of feelings of powerlessness as a child. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I just was going through your book again this weekend and looking through it. I'd read it, um, I guess, a couple of years ago I picked it up. So, it, you know, and I was found it to be just a fascinating memoir. And, you know, thinking about... Um, how many people today talk about that kind of a life? You know, it's not uncommon for people to say, oh, I, I want to move off grid and live oh, in absolutely. the country and, you know, just kind of turn my back on, especially with technology and some of the paranoia and fear around that. Yeah. And I, you know, I actually, I believe it can be done right. And I, I actually fantasize about it myself sometimes, <laughs> believe it or not. But, you know, in a completely, done in a completely different way. Um, but I do think that my, my book has opened a lot of people's eyes to the not so romantic side to mm. doing it back in, you know, in the, in the 70s. Yeah, I bet you're a great person to go camping with. <laughs> I am not. Oh my god, I'm actually terrible. I don't camp. First of all, like I do not camp under any circumstances. Uh, yeah, I've kind of had my fill. <laughs> so I want to talk about that because society is all about judgment and assumptions, which I just made one then. How did judgment and assumptions show up on your life or, or when did you kind of first become aware of that, if you like? Because my understanding is the, the early years, I mean, you were across from a, was it, yeah, was it a reservation? A First Nations tribe, yes, we were. First Nations tribe. in teepees and they taught us a lot about teepee living. Yeah, but you even, you had this inkling that you were different. So, yeah, I just wonder how your kind of upbringing led you to be more open and less judging or not, maybe? Mm, great question. Um, you know, I don't think I'm any less judgmental than anybody else, unfortunately. <laughs> it's the school um, system. <laughs> I, I work hard on not being, you know, um, and, and I certainly writing these two books and putting them out there has helped a lot because uh, I always felt like I never wanted to talk about my past because mm-hmm. I felt like I would be judged because of it. But as a result, I was very private about it. And I, in turn, made judgments on other people. Uh, for example, I live in a very, you know, wealthy community in Vancouver. And, um, you know, before my book came out, I would kind of look at all these women and be like, well, I'm such an outsider here. And these women have, you know, had pretty easy lives and they're from wealthy, they, you know, they're living their dream, living and they've never had any real problems. And that was my assumption. And then when my book came out and these same people read it, they would come to me and they would tell me their truth, their stories. And I would be like, oh, my God, I'm, I feel I felt horrible for, you know, some of the judgment I passed on these people without knowing their true story. And so it's that has taught me a lot. 
But also, I was brought up, obviously, by a very tolerant family. And my mother's greatest quality was her optimism and her optimism and her openness with people and her acceptance of people. And I like to think that a little bit of that rubbed off on me. Mm, that's great. Yeah, thanks for sharing that because I think we do, and we've spoken on a podcast before about how we always look out of our lives and judge ourselves yeah. against others often and uh and it's always just a reminder that we we all have our stuff we all have our story and absolutely um, I, I think there is this value and like you have done value and power and sharing that story and that's that's the gift so yeah thanks yeah, yeah and it's also you know I mean for me a sec especially in my second book I I felt extremely vulnerable um putting that book into the world because I revealed some stuff in there that I promised myself I would never reveal. But, you know, what I've really learned is the reward of for, for putting yourself out there and being vulnerable is so much greater than the risk. And so I, I hope that other people would um, take that away from my story too, because, you know, making your, allowing yourself to be vulnerable is, is the area for the greatest growth in our lives, as far as I'm concerned. Wow. That was one of my questions. I was actually going to ask you if you ever had what Brene Brown calls a vulnerability hangover. <laughs> oh, my God. You have no idea. Um, yeah, her her book, Daring Greatly, was one of my great inspirations, actually. And it, it, it really pushed me to finish my first book when I was really struggling with it. And um, I have absolutely had a couple of those vulnerability hangovers. The greatest one was about two weeks before my second book came out. And I was such a nervous wreck. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. And I just looked at my husband and I said, what, what would you say if I said, let's just pull the plug? And at that point, <laughs> I mean, you know, my, my publisher would have killed me. You know, the books were printed. They were being sent out. It, it would have just been a horrible fiasco. Um, but he talked me off the ledge and ever since then i've i've been fine and the book came out and um the the response to it was so so positive and and amazing and um that i think that that taught me that it is so valuable to have one good person in your corner when you're oh. going through stuff like that one of your key messages is it's not necessarily about courage but it's about forward movement also not necessarily about overcoming fear yeah. if I've got it it's about forward movement and um, mm. both Sandy and I have worked with a lot of leaders and 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 we're trying to help them understand that vulnerability helps build connection oh yeah uh, sure. and um, it, it is a scary place to be so yeah Mm -hmm. It is, yes. But like I said, you know, incredibly rewarding. Um, mm. And people sort of say to me, well, you've like, you know, you're, how do you do it? You know, like, how do you put yourself out there like that? Aren't you scared? You know, and, and I'm like, yeah, but you know, I spent most of my life hiding my past and look where that got me. You know, I, I wasn't happy. I was um, not dealing with my issues. And now I've dealt with my issues very publicly. But um, it, I I'm, feel so much better about myself and my life than I ever have. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I think along the vulnerability, and you're, you've mentioned it a few times, is fear. And that was something that came mm -hmm. up for me when I was, like, looking at some of your blog posts and reading some of your other material as well. This, and I think in your TEDx talks as well, you talked about mm -hmm. use, useful fear 
and yes. useless fears. So I don't know if you want to explain that for our listeners. Yeah. Well, my grandfather was, um, <laughs> one of his big beliefs was that, um, you know, everybody lives in fear and that, um, you know, there's only two, there's only two emotions, love and fear. And so you're either living in one or the other. And he was all about banishing fear completely from his life. And he didn't even really believe in useful fear, actually. Um, useful fear is, you know, what, like the fight or flight of, you know, if a mm-hmm. bear is chasing us, you know, we, 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 uh, we do what we can to avoid being attacked. You know, if, if an ax murders behind us, we run, we don't just stand there and say, hi, please don't kill me. Um, so that, that sort of fear, obviously we need, and it's useful and it can tell us when something's wrong. It can, um, it's usually a very instinctual thing, but useless fear is all of the what if, and what if this happens and, you know, Oh, the regrets and, um, envy and uh any sort of basically you know just wondering always imagining the worst case scenario and as a result letting it paralyze you um for me i i feel so lucky that i was taught not to allow that to dominate my life and if it had i i would absolutely not be where i am now i i wouldn't have achieved anything that i have and so my message is constantly you know to to people i you know friends and family and also to my readers just you know just do it don't let fear paralyze you just move forward you know be solution oriented and um don't worry about what will probably never happen. Is that what helped you at age 13 do something so drastic? And if you just want to share what you did (laughs) to pursue your modeling career? Yeah, for sure. So um, I decided to enter a modeling career. It was um, a lifelong dream. Um, And also for me, a very handy way of escaping my crazy family. (laughs) Um, So I, uh, the way I started it was when I was 13, I read in the newspaper that there was a local agency in Calgary holding a modeling competition. So I, I just walked in and I said, hi, uh, you know, I'm, I'm here for the competition. And they're like, okay, how old are you? And I'm like, well, how old do you have to be? <laughs> and like, I'm 15. And I'm like, well, I'm 15. And of course I wasn't, but I was 13 at the time. Uh, and then, so sure enough, within a few months, I was um, off to New York by myself. And then at the age of 15, I was in Paris by myself, which sounds crazy to a lot of us, especially if we're parents and we have kids that age, we can't imagine them doing such a thing. But for me, it was um, it was more exhilarating than it was terrifying. I was just so happy to have the opportunity to get away from my family and do something mm. that I'd been dreaming of. And so that definitely that helped conquer my fear. But there was a bit of desperation there, too, um, of just so badly needing to change my life and not being willing to wait until I was 18 and had finished high school. So uh, it's a combination of things, but certainly I think being raised in an environment where, um, you know, I was, I was taught not to fear, you know, useless fear and also um, having experienced so many potentially dangerous and dangerous Mm -hmm. situations physically and emotionally when I was young helped prepare me for, um, for going out into the big world when I was very young. Mm -hmm. That's great. I think another um, theme that I've I've um, 
read in your writing is this whole idea about resilience. And I think you wrote it on your blog that resilience is a buzzword in your life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious how you develop or how you develop res- uh, resilience and how you would um, talk to other people about who might not feel like they're able to build resilience. What are some, some ideas that you think are helpful for everyone in building resilience? You know, that's a question that I get so much, and I wish that I had a super great answer for you. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> <laughs> One that would go like, oh, yeah, that's that's it. I've never thought of that before, but I, I really don't. I can only talk from my own experience, and I've spent, you know, so much time thinking about this topic as well. I think um, a lot of resilience is absolutely built in when we are born. I think that I got it. I have, you know... My grandparents on my mother's side, obviously very, very strong people, very willing to take risks. Going out to live in the middle of the wilderness is is a Mm. huge risk. Um, My father, I I have uh, very strong genetics from him, even though he wasn't involved in my life when I was young. And he is a very, also a very strong, resilient person. So, and if I look at my own three children, they have varying degrees of resilience. And I have certainly not raised them any differently from each other. So I see, I I strongly believe that about 90% of it is just inborn, um, which is not to say that it can't be uh, taught, but if you're born with it, obviously you have an advantage. Um, welcoming situations that are challenging and seeing them not as as fearful but as opportunities to grow and practice our resilience um, can help a lot I try to do that with my children when I have challenges in my own life you know things like you you know if they they don't get invited to that birthday party Mm -hmm. or they're being bullied or they failed a test or whatever you don't just like sweep it under the carpet and call the mom and say invite my son to your party, please. You know, you just let them, you, you deal with it and you try to see it as growth opportunities. Um, and also with myself, I have to remind myself of that because I still, you know, life is hard, right? We, I still have many challenges in my life from time to time. And I try to embrace them as opportunities for growth rather than um, just really fearful situations. Um but uh, yeah, I don't have the I don't have the answers for you. <laughs> no, no magic solution. You know what? As you were talking, Sierra and Sandy and I have had this conversation before. I um, I work with a lot of I used to work in a lot of nonprofits and uh, support professional development for youth workers and uh, nurses. Anyone who worked with youth. Yeah. I was arranging a training from a child psychologist and. She told me something that I never forget. I mean, I don't have children, but I try and pass it on wherever I can. <laughs> she said, parent to protect mm-hmm. till children are around 12, mm-hmm. parent to prepare after that. And I really, as I've been going through my own family struggles, see a lot of people who overprotect in their parenting because they don't want their kids to hurt or they don't want to hurt themselves. Oh, yeah, and to me, I think that's missing the whole development of Resilience. Oh, there's no question. There's there's absolutely and no question. I think your parents did the opposite, and your grandparents they just kind of <laughs> did. Let's let's just parent to prepare right from the beginning. Oh, you know? yeah. There was ab- totally. There was. It, I was basically really left to do it on my own, which which is not. You know, obviously, it's it's made me into a strong person, but it's of it's course. not the way you do it, and it's no. very tough as a parent to fight against that 
constant urge and instinct to protect and and see your children experience no pain i fight against it every day Mm. Mm. um but i would agree that you know and and i'm i'm very big on self-sufficiency you know i'm the motto in our house is if you can do it, you're not allowed to ask mom. <laughs> of course, they still do, but you know, and sometimes I still do it for them. But I, I keep reminding them that you know, I am that my job, and I even my five year old, my youngest, I remind her all the time. My job is to prepare you to be a a, a functioning, happy adult. You know, a successful person who can make her way in life it's not my job to uh do everything for you because then you'll never learn how yourself so Mm -hmm. i had this exact conversation with my daughter today because she's up at a cottage with her daughter her family Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she sent me a text she said i feel like i'm constantly squashing my kids because i keep telling them not to put bugs in their mouth and not to you know (laughs) her daughter's three and she's she said she's constantly like running into things and falling yeah she said to me i just feel like i'm just always like on her and she's reading some book called homegrown and she's like i think i just need to let her fall and need her let her eat the bugs and stop trying to control everything i said to her i think it's a balance Mm-hmm. in it is you know definitely. you have to find boundaries as a parent but you have to as well like let them yeah and I, I don't know I think we're all yeah. dancing that bound ba- that <laughs> oh it is such a, it's such a struggle and such a juggle and it's it's daily and I don't think it ever really ends you know and um no matter what what age they're at yeah <laughs> yeah yes. well mine totally. are in their 30s and I'm still letting them fall absolutely <laughs> You had this very different childhood and, you know, wanted to get out there. In your words, I wanted to get away from my family. And and obviously these things impact us throughout life. Um, But you also spoke on the TED Talk about leaving your second marriage or or getting out of your second marriage. And when Sandy asked the resilience question, you know, one of my questions was, so how did you work through Because I think that's where resilience comes. So how did you work through that time because you didn't just automatically wake up and go okay I've just accepted all that happened in my childhood I now (laughs) understand it and now I know that this is not the life I want to live right now right Um, no so yeah what did you do did you engage some help did you have friends did you just kind of I don't know reflect on it a bit more well it's very interesting because the the time that I decided I needed to leave that marriage was also the time that I started writing North of Normal. Mm. So it was really the time that I finally decided to deal with my past and, you know, the the demons that were eating away with me. And I did that through writing. And it was it was really interesting, the timing, because as soon as I started, I it's like I I suspected that I needed to leave my marriage. But then as soon as I started reading or started writing, I knew I had to. But the problem was that um, I was in a very vulnerable position financially and we were living in a a city where I didn't know anyone and I had a small child and a business and no no child care and it was just a very off. And my mother was dying of cancer and I mean, it was just a horrible situation. Um, And it, that took, 
by far the most courage I've ever had to muster up in my entire life. And mm. if I ever have to go through something like that again, I don't know if I'll make it <laughs> because it was so hard to, to leave, not the marriage because the love was long gone, but mm. to put myself um, in that position. Um, I left my, my second husband about a month after my mother died mm. and um, my, my, my business collapsed at the exact same time. And I, I was bankrupt, and I, I didn't even have a car, and I had a, a young son to look after, and it was absolutely horrifically terrifying. And um, I made it through, though, because I decided that whatever lay in store for me was better, had to be better than what the situation that I was in. And I just said, you know what, I've just, I've, I've fought too hard to have a different life, and I've come too far to be taken down by something like this and I just made the decision and as soon as I did and I started putting one foot in front of the other it was it was hard but um it I'm you know obviously I'm so glad I did it and it changed everything changed mm -hmm. my whole life you know I met I've, I'm now remarried I have a fantastic marriage and two more kids and um I got my book written and another book written and mm. it all stemmed from that because having the courage to do that gave me the courage to go on and do other things that I wanted mm. to do. So that to me that is resilience and when you I just wrote down what you said whatever is next has to be better than yeah the situation yeah. that I'm in. Yeah. So like did you take your child and go to a friend's? <laughs> like um, practically <laughs> did you get support or with it, I mean obviously I only share what you want to share yeah, no, just thinking I, for our listeners who may think wow this is my situation how did you do like, that yeah what do I do um well I mean I I I didn't have a lot of support because I don't have any right. family around but I mm. did have um you know my my father and I are quite close now and he oh. he gave me a very small amount of money to help yeah. me out like very small, yeah, um, yeah. but I was lucky enough to have my swimsuit company, um, which I liquidated. So unfortunately, I lost a quarter of a million dollars in you know the the um, investment that I'd made into it. Mm -hmm. But I was able to liquidate what I had to get enough money to live on for about three months. So right. I took my son and we were, I was, I, and I wasn't, um, I wasn't a totally single mother. I was what I call a solo mother, which means I had my son half the time and then my ex had him half the time. So I knew he wasn't going to starve, you know, it wasn't, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> I knew that no matter what my son would have enough to eat and he'd have a roof over his head. So that stress was, was off. But um, I rented a small uh, duplex and um, we moved in there and I proceeded to do whatever I could to, um, you know, make money. And that included, you know, painting houses, cleaning houses. Mm -hmm. um, I knew how to build websites. So I started building websites for friends. Um, I took whatever modeling work I could get, which was very little in the city of Vancouver. I just literally, I pawned, I pawned my wedding rings. I pawned furniture. I did, mm -hmm. I literally did whatever I had to yeah. do. Thanks for sharing that because I think sometimes people can think you've got your book and it's all great, sure. but it's, yeah. it's hard, hard work. I mean, first of all, the courage to say, I'm going to leave this nice yeah. life or, well, yeah. not nice, but the roof over my head, the car and mm -hmm. uh, 
and then to dig in and go, yeah, I'm going to have to clean houses and whatever else it yeah, is. is definitely uh, yeah. your, your pride takes a hit. And, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, I didn't have a car. Luckily, one of my oldest friends lent me her second car, you know, and it was a, it was a beater. But, you know, I drove it for a few months and I was so grateful to have it. And um, I think I drove it for about six months. And it, it was like, I just refused to let my ego get involved. You know, I'm like, no, I'm doing what I have to do. I don't care what other people think. This is all going to turn out. One day I'm going to look back at this, be so happy I did it, and I'm going to be in a way better place. Mm-hmm. And, and I am, obviously. So it, it, it really can work out, but you have to have faith, and you have to believe in yourself, and you have to just, you know, be willing to just keep that forward motion going. (laughs) So I'm curious because I, I'm just imagining maybe projecting a little bit as well (laughs) that um, when someone grows up feeling like they have to take care of themselves. And I think, you know, Joanne and I very different stories, but maybe at times have felt that way in our growing up Mm -hmm. years as well. How, how have you learned to, um, rely and depend on other people has that been difficult um yeah yes and no um I I'm I've never I'm quite trusting so by nature so the trust hasn't really been an issue for me for sure um asking for help is a very very difficult thing for me to do um you know even now my friends, I'm lucky to have some really amazing friends and they know that if I'm going through something difficult, I, I just pull away and um, sort of retreat because I don't want to burden anyone with my problems and I don't want to ask anyone for help. And it's just, that's just kind of who I am and I've kind of accepted it and it works better for me to just process things on my own rather than talk about them because when I start talking about it, it makes it almost too real for me. (laughs) But I also think it's just, it's when it comes to a partner, like um, husband, wife, whatever, it's just so important to choose the right person. And that sounds so elementary, but it really is because if you do you know, take the time to wait and choose the right person, then you can really rely on them and ask them for help without fear. And when I think about like my previous two marriages and my current marriage and how I was so afraid to ask for anything from my first two husbands and compared to the situation now, it really is just a matter of choosing the right person. Mm, That's great. Yeah, I was thinking that when you were feeling very vulnerable the, the two weeks before mm-hmm. your book was going to be released mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what went through my mind is, you know, as long as you love me, my partner, then all is good, you know. Like. <laughs> it, it was kind of like that, you know, and I'm like, you know what, I've got my family, I've yes. got my kids, um, you know, what's the worst that can happen? We have to move to Saskatchewan, like yeah. a small town. <laughs> we have to go out in the wilderness exactly (laughs) oh my gosh I lived in Saskatchewan for five years so I understand that comment (laughs) I don't mean to insult Saskatchewan no I know it's just uh not a big city for sure right I think what you're touching on though is it's it, it is all our buzzwords it's it's having that mindset and having that courage to go 
you know what, this is not okay. You know, I see it around me a lot that people are unhappy, but think they can't make they a change. They can't, and they're so afraid of change. And yeah. I always, what I always say is, okay, but if you stay, you're eliminating every single chance you have of being happier with somebody else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, it's just as simple as that. Or they don't believe that, oh, I'll never meet someone, you know, I don't play. Uh, but yeah, yeah. a it's, lot of it is self-fulfilling too. Yeah. One thing I didn't mention, I, I did write about this in my books, but I, you know, when I left my second husband, I, I said, to, I had a long talk with myself and I'm like, that's it. Like, I'm not, cho- you cannot choose men who are incompatible with you anymore. So I sat down and I made a list of everything that I wanted my next partner to have. And I vowed to myself, I would not compromise or settle. And he came into my life, like within a few months. And so I think that that's so important to know what you want and decide you're not going to settle on anything else. And that's, and then you will attract that. Mm. And I want to just jump in and say, it's not even just about marriage or, or, a, or a life partner that we're talking about. We see this in people at work, like in oh, their yeah. jobs. Um, friends. You know, make, I think yeah. that's a great strategy. Yeah, friends. We've had an yeah. episode on friends too. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's, that's a great strategy. Make a list of everything you want out of your work, you know, everything you need in your life out of, <laughs> out of your friendship and out of the connections and um, don't settle. Yeah, we, we, we've recorded an episode on, on power that's just recently come out and that we want women to embrace the power that they have in being able to make decisions that um, exactly. help them lead their lives. So I think you've, exactly. you've kind of, your story shares that, um, that it can be done. It's hard. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and but that's the thing I tell people too. Like, of course, it's not going to be easy. You can't expect it to be easy. It's going to be t- super hard. But like there's a reward at the end of it and like just you know don't sell yourself short Mm. wow that's a lot and relationships are a big thing for us it's part of our reframing model that we use Mm -hmm. i want to shift a little bit into talking about your work though um in the book writing process a Mm. little bit and um i was i've been looking at some of the the work that you're doing so did you always want to be a writer or was that something like what, what drove you to, to want to write? Yeah, I've always wanted to write. I, um, I started writing, you know, stories as a child and um, I still have a few of them. And then my high school English teacher was very um, supportive of me and she encouraged me to uh, pursue a creative writing career. But then I got, you know, I got involved in modeling and my life was going off the rails and, and it just sort of took, you know, a, went just sort of late fallow for many, many years. And, uh, but I would think about it often and I would write in my head, you know, and I would think to myself, someday I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write my life story because I knew it was a crazy story. <laughs> um, but the problem, of course, was that I, I wasn't sharing it with anyone. So even my best friends didn't really know my, my story because I was so ashamed to tell my past to anybody. So um, it took a combination of being ready to move beyond that shame and share my story with the world. And um, finally having the, the courage to go after my dream, which was to be a writer. 
And believe me, when I started writing, I was so bad. <laughs> I, I hadn't written since high school, and I thought I was a good writer, but oh my god, like... I would be so embarrassed if I even had to go back and read my early drafts of my first book. So again, um, years and years of practice um, Mm. and just being very, very determined to uh, make this particular dream come true was involved in, in getting that first book done. Great. Mm. And, and the second book. So the first book, I I think it took you about six years from you start to finish. Is that right? Yeah, six years from start until the day I actually sold it to a publisher. And then, or sorry, not me, but my agent sold it mm-hmm. to HarperCollins. And then it was another year and a half after that until the book actually hit the shelves. So it was a, it was an eight year process. Wow. <laughs> and can we, can we just, can I just jump in here, Sandy, and just talk about your rejection during that time yes. of publishers? Mm-hmm. How did you work through that? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, six years of rejection, because what I would do is I would I would write it. And then I think, Oh, it's ready. It's great. And then, you know, send off my query letters. And then, you know, the rejection letters would start rolling in from the agents. And I'd be like, Oh, God, okay, here we go again. So then I'd go back, rewrite for maybe another year, Ah. start the whole process over again. Okay. And I went so I went through that three times and at one point I actually got an agent and I'm like oh my god it's a done deal it's you know it's only a matter of time he couldn't sell the book rejected by every publisher in North America so again very discouraging but I was so determined I'm like nope so I went back to the drawing board and so I repeated this process three times and then so it was on my fourth try of um, sending my query letters out that I finally got it right and I had offers from five literary agents within a week which was incredible Mm. and then the the agent that I went with sold my book in 24 hours so it was amazing yeah it was a complete turnaround but um, again it just it just took so much determination and there were times I felt like quitting but deep down I knew that I wouldn't you know and there were times when I you know, during this time, I also, you know, I, I got divorced, I got remarried, I had two more babies. So <laughs> I, my life was incredibly busy. And so there were times when I would go for six or nine months without writing a word. But then I would always know that one day I'm going to sit back down, and I'm going to get back to that book. And I always did. And I just, mm. I just kept going until I, until I got it right. I just, it was, I was obsessed. <laughs> Well, and those rejection letters were gifts in a way because they helped you get a a product. Oh, um, they were. And, you know, this is what I always tell people who who say, um, well, you know, I'm thinking about self-publishing. And and I'm I'm like, okay, you know, you you do what you want to do, but here is my take on self-publishing. Great. You (laughs) self-publish if you're lazy. (laughs) The reason I say this is because each and every one of those rejection letters I got made me go back to the drawing board and forced me to create a better product. And so I think that if you're not willing to put the work in to create the best product that you possibly can, then you shouldn't really expect people to read your book. Yeah, I'm trying so, to think of who I heard recently speak um, on a podcast, a, a writer, and um, it'll come to me, but he said that he can tell, like, in the first chapter of a book, 
whether or not someone had to write that book or whether or not they just wanted to have a book. Right. And, and I think that's true. Like I, I, I totally understood what he was saying because I read a lot and you can almost tell that in a book, you know, that, that this person was just compelled to tell this story. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's there, there is so much passion that has to go um, behind writing that, you know, <sighs> and dedication and willingness to just try every possible angle to, to create the best book that you can. And um, if you're not willing to put the work in, then uh, I don't know, I just, yeah. <laughs> Just yeah. having, having been through so much myself, getting my own books published, um, I just, I feel like it, without that, I would not have, certainly wouldn't have become the writer that I am today. And I wouldn't have felt right about sharing my message, I don't think, if I didn't know that I had um, a publisher who believed it was good enough to put into the world. Mm. That's great. Yeah. And so now you're writing fiction. You're writing a fiction book. I'm trying. <laughs> so how different is that for you compared to writing a memoir? Oh, my God. It is so different. And I have to say I, I underestimated how, how uh, difficult it was going to be to make the leap from one genre to another. Because my my memoirs read a lot like fiction, so I thought, oh, it's going to be easy, you know. But um, creating something out of absolutely nothing is a completely different story. With memoir, the challenge is that you have, you know, this life that is full of randomness and lots of boring stretches and... Um, you know, not always a, uh, a a clear narrative arc, and in fact, never a clear narrative arc. <laughs> and you have to find a way to fit it into um, this this uh, story structure that will keep people engaged, and um, which is kind of just the opposite of fiction because you have to you know create everything. So um, yeah, I'm struggling with it at the moment, and I'm actually taking some time off from it. Uh, but I, I, I will certainly, as I did with my first book, I will get back to it, and I will write it until I've created a book that I'm happy with and my publisher's happy with. Well, I was just thinking one of my favorite writers is Sue Monk Kidd, and she went from, you know, she made a shift into fiction. And I don't uh -huh. know if you've ever read her, but I, I've read her process and, you know, how much research and everything that has to go into fiction that, you know, it is surprising yeah. to me, you know. Absolutely. I mean, with memoir, you really don't have to do much any <laughs> right. research because it's just all in your head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'm looking forward to it. So and I think the yeah, advantage now great. is you have a fan base that um, will be waiting to... Read yes, and I'm well. so grateful. For, I'm so grateful for that. Um, I just don't want to disappoint them. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned you have kids now, three kids. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. And I'm, I'm just wondering if we kind of start circling back to end with, uh, with some of your learnings from your childhood, and and what, if you're comfortable talking about what you might be um, bringing into teaching your children. Mm -hmm. about yeah, some of the values or what you learned throughout your own childhood? Um, I think it comes back to a lot of what we discussed before, uh, mm -hmm. you know, just um, really letting them 
tackle their own challenges and trying to instill self-sufficiency and uh, certainly always protecting them and having their back and letting them know, you know, encouraging them and letting them know that I believe in them no matter what, no matter what they want to do. Um, I guess, you know, I, I certainly make mistakes as a parent and I um, fail sometimes. <laughs> But uh, I try to keep a, a good balance between what what I learned from my own childhood and what, you know, the kind of mother that I want to be. Mm. What's your relationship with social media? Another one we were talking a lot about these yeah. days. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do, I have my social media thing going for my work, you know, and I, I, I enjoy it. I, Facebook, I really only, I'm on there for my author page, not really personally. I love Instagram. I think it's great. It's fun. I love the whole picture thing. Mm. Um, and my kids are too young to, even my 12-year-old boy, he's not interested in social media. He, so I'm, uh, you know, uh, well, that's a bridge that I'll have to cross. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, with that, people can find you on Facebook. Is, is it just see a person? Uh, see a person author. Okay. Yes. Instagram is um, see a sunrise person, I believe. I think it's see a person or see a sunrise person. And then um, Twitter is see a person. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And, you know, we were excited to be able to make this connection because we are all about hearing stories of how people have reframed their life and how they've overcome adversity. And, um, you know, I love your, um, one of the things that you say is about writing your story without fear. And I really appreciate <laughs> your message around fear and, and forward movement. So thank you thank so you. much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're Thanks, welcome. Thea. Thank you. Hi, Life Reframers. Did you enjoy our episode today? If so, please leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, check us out on all our social media avenues via reframeyourlife.ca.